Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Weird Biology Show podcast. I'm Sean, your level 15 Swarm Keeper Ranger. And I'm Dan, your Galactic Viceroy of Apiary Excellence. <laughs> welcome back, dear listeners. Uh, today, we are going to be discussing, uh, as the title may allude to, killer bees and crossbows. Now, I'm really hoping we have some really crafty fans out there that can turn this into a board game. I want to play Killer Bees and Crossbows. So the paper we're going to be discussing today is Experimental Removal of Invasive Africanized Honeybees Increased Breeding Population of Endangered Lear's Macaw by Pacifico et al. It was from uh, only a few months ago in 2020. So before we jump into the paper, I just want to give you guys kind of a, a quick background on what is an Africanized honeybee, how did they end up in South America, and why they're called killer bees. So an apiarist by the name of Dr. Warwick Estevam Kerr, who was also a geneticist, entomologist, and agricultural engineer, uh, actually bred these bees. He was trying to create a honeybee that was more suitable to tropical environments. So Dr. Kerr brought over these honeybees from Tanzania, which were more suited to the, the tropical environment of Brazil. And unfortunately, he hired a new beekeeper to help maintain his hives, who realized that the queen excluder, which is a screen that keeps the uh, queen bees from escaping the hives, um, that queen excluder was interfering with the worker bee's ability to get in and out of the hive. So he decided to take those out, which caused 26 swarms to basically be released into the wild and able to reproduce with uh, other beekeepers, European honeybees. So what I'm getting here in layman's terms is this guy went out of Dr. Frankenstein on some bees, and then his poor assistant in a classic I'm helping me moment let his monsters out all over the world. So he didn't have monsters yet. He just had African honeybees. Um, <laughs> they became monsters so, after So the killing escaped. came later. The killing came later. Now, it, it should be noted that um, African honeybees are, generally speaking, more... Aggressive's not the word for it because they just have a larger defensive range than European honeybees. And European honeybees have been bred for so long that... They've kind of bred down to a more docile swarm. So when those African honeybees bred with the European honeybees, they kept their aggressive traits, believe it or not. Um, so one paper mentioned that they'll, uh, they'll attack you as far away as like five meters from their hive, which is about 16 feet, which like, you're really not a threat at 16 feet. So they're angry bees. They're very angry, <laughs> but, you know, they want to protect their hive, which, you know, it's understandable. The issue being, um, because they're so fucking aggressive that they outcompete the other native bees and uh, have actually been known to kill both people and large animals um, because they don't just attack. Like, if you've been stung by a bee, you've probably been stung by, like, one bee. But these guys swarm. Even when you're away from their hive, they swarm. So you end up getting stung by hundreds of bees. 
I think a Wikipedia article said they've been known to kill things up to the size of a horse, <laughs> which is incredibly extreme when you think about it. Oh, so a nice and painless way to go, Africanized killer honeybees. <laughs> and, like, so killer bee was a term that came about when the media kind of sensationalized these bees as they've been moving up. So they were originally released in the 1950s. Um, they bred with the, the European, like, beekeeping populations and then just continued to spread north. They hit Texas by about 1990-something. And that's when the media went crazy, like, the bees are coming to kill us all, and then they made a horror movie about the bees. I mean, I have to ask, though, are they really sensationalizing if these things kill horses? <laughs> I mean, they sensationalized it in the sense that these bees are going out and they're hunting down people and horses, and which is obviously not the case. They're They're defensive, but they just have a very wide range of uh, travel. And they build very large hives. So they believe the best defense is a good offense. Exactly. <laughs> they right. do that really, really well. Um, so when it became kind of an issue in South America was with kind of conservation of birds. Um, it turns out these bees kind of really love to make their nests in recesses. So I think in Nicaragua, they had um, bird boxes not like the movie with Sandra Bullock. Um, it, it was, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's just like your, your standard box. You would screw onto a side of a tree with a hole in it, which allows birds to just go in and nest. It's, it's a birdhouse. Not going to lie. I was waiting for you to tell me they like to murder native birds. <laughs> they do like to murder native birds. Oh. They don't like to, they don't like to murder native birds. It's just that the niche in which they live often crosses path with birds that want to live in that same niche. <laughs> so birds end up dying because they're competing with bees to live in a specific spot. And in these these bird boxes in particular, these these boxes were put there specifically for endangered species. So basically it created a niche for these bees to live in that was also supposed to be occupied by an endangered species of bird and... Oh, yeah, they were in danger. They were sharing a space with killer bees. <laughs> so the bees would, uh, the birds would show up to a box that's already, you know, inhabited by bees and get stung to death or just be forced out of that niche and have to travel somewhere else. It could potentially, like, if, if they're in a breeding pair, it could end in the death of one of the, the breeding uh, birds. Causes all sorts of issues. Um so where this paper comes in is they spoke to a bunch of farmers and they were looking into ways of how can we protect the Lear's Macaw? Because I think there's less than a thousand Lear's Macaw left. Let me, let me double check that. Society says there's under a thousand two hundred of Lear's Macaw left in the wild. Um, it's <laughs> so huge problem for that, that species. So they found that these birds particularly love to, nest in cliff sides but they also found that the bees also love to create hives in the cliff sides um so in 2010 when this this est population estimate came out these researchers were looking at ways where they could help the birds reestablish their typical breeding grounds um in this cliffside that the farmers used to tell them hey years ago there used to be tons of birds in these cliff sides 
but they're all gone now. But also, that's where we go to collect honey from the killer bees. <laughs> um, Sounds risky at best, but go on. <laughs> we'll definitely get into that. It is it's it's a risky uh risky business to be a killer bee honey collector. So what they started to do was, and this is where the paper gets fucking awesome, is they're like, we are going to strap a glass vial onto a crossbow bolt, and we're going to fire this crossbow bolt into these nests and try to kill off the nests. I've, as, you know, I've, I've worked in science, I've been in science, and you have as well, which means I've been in many meetings and many brainstorming sessions as far as scientific experiments, as I imagine you have. Yeah. I wish I could have been in that meeting where they were like, all right, how do we solve this problem? Because I'm used to, you know, boring answers. We do this experiment. We do this experiment. <laughs> Why couldn't I have ever been in the meeting where someone's like, I've got an idea. Let's shoot the bees with crossbows. <laughs> My uncle Douglas said we could borrow his crossbow. I, um, <laughs> I'm jealous. Like, as a person that's been a dungeon master in D&D for a few years now, this is definitely something a player would come to you like, uh, DM, can I, can I strap a glass vial to a crossbow bolt full of poison and launch it into that cloud of enemies? Like, fuck it. Yeah, do it. I feel like I got into the wrong kind of science because our <laughs> answer was never shoot it with a crossbow. Exactly. Like... And it doesn't even stop there. It gets fucking cooler. They're also rappelling down the side of these cliffs in harnesses and stuff. Like, these guys are like the fucking special forces of scientists. And I, I want to be there. I want to be doing this. Like, I, I feel like I've gone down the wrong path becoming a marine biologist when I could have been a fucking bee crossbowist. Uh, I, I could have been in, like... Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Killer Bees, but instead, I'm a software <laughs> developer. I messed up. So, for their experiment, they had three separate treatments. They they um, determined that there was over 100 hives in this cliffside. So, for the control, they didn't do anything to the, uh, the beehives at all. They were left alone. They weren't hit with uh, any pesticides at all. Um... In their second treatment, they killed off the hive using the uh, bolt technique. Um, so what happens is the bolt is filled with uh, permethrins, which are a known pesticide. It's pretty widely used in like um, spraying your lawn. It's also used in like tick medication and stuff for pets. So they'd launch those into it. The vial would crack. The permethrins would uh, just get throughout the hive. In some of the bigger hives, they had to shoot up to seven times. They said, <laughs> which is which is a lot. Um, I'm imagining some scientists just like standing in a line on a cliff, repelling, just screaming "fire at will" before bombarding <laughs> these beehives with crossbow bolts. Oh, that's so good. Like they had to get real fucking good at this by the end of the summer, whenever their field season was. <sighs> So, after um, they filled the, the hive with permethrins, they would repel down, and they would also spray the inside of that recess with uh, fipronil, which is another very common pesticide used in lawn treatment, as well as 
pet flea and tick medications. Throwback, you know, knowledge set to my uh, veterinary tech days where this uh, comes in handy. So the insect equivalent of nuke them from orbit. Essentially, yeah. Um, so they, they filled that up. So this is where the treatments diverge. So in some of these treated uh, recesses, they would leave the hive there. And in others, they would remove the hive altogether. How was this to see if, you know, leaving it there had any effect on the... Because ostensibly, they're trying to get the birds to come back, right? Right, right. Okay. Um, so, so the thought process is, well, if the birds come back, like, will the presence of the hive deter them, even though there's no bees present? Um, but these birds also have really powerful beaks. Will they just tear the hive apart and remove it themselves? Um, I don't know, if I was one of those birds, I'd be plenty deterred. Yeah. And th- so the, the final treatment was that they, they killed the hive and removed it altogether. So... In doing these practices, they noticed over the uh, course of time that they were measuring this that the breeding populations had actually increased by 71%, which is massive, obviously. But that being said, like breeding populations in the area were pretty low to begin with. We're talking about going from something like nine pairs to like 16 pairs. Like that's that's only like 40 some odd percent in, in one, one year study. So like... As someone who doesn't really have a background in any sort of like zoological science, how significant is that for the recovery of an endangered species? Because, you know, if you say you hear it increased by 50%, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, wow, that sounds like a lot. But then you hear, oh, it went from 9 to 16. And you're like, that sounds like not a lot. Right. So how significant is that for the recovery of an endangered species? So it's, it's, it's hard to say because... At the end of the day, you're going to need to find more than just this to protect the birds because uh, I'll get into some other things in a second. But because these cliffsides had kind of uh, transitioned from, you know, a breeding population site to a bee site, a lot of people were actually coming here, putting up like uh, scaffolding so they could collect honey from the hives. So now that the scaffolding is present or these ladders are present in some areas, now the birds are at risk for poaching. What kind of crazy bastard goes, yeah, those bees, they've been known to kill horses <laughs> that get too close. Let's go get some honey. Who's with but me? But they're, they're, you know, they're honeybees. They were, you know, they were bred for that. They produce loads of honey. If you have the proper equipment, it's it's not dangerous. Like this, this science team in particular, Pacifico's team, we're probably all wearing bee suits. I know that they mentioned they used smoke at times, probably when removing the hives, just in case there was anything left in them. Um, so, you know, almost doubling the breeding population in this area is great. They mentioned in previous years before removing the bees that the birds would still fill this niche, but in lesser in number and lower on the cliffside, which opened them up to predation from, you know, animals that were lower in that niche i was just lower on the cliffside right right, where they were before right or so after the bees were removed the birds uh predominantly chose the higher cave recesses in in the cliffside as opposed to the ones lower so it's it's definitely their preferred area and i think if this is going to be the primary method of you know uh getting these birds their niche back 
it, it needs to be critiqued really hardly. So Pomethrins are pretty low on the toxicity level for birds, but on the other side of it, Fipronil is actually super highly toxic to birds. And they're, they're talking about coating the entrance of these recesses with it to stop the bees from coming back and, you know, refilling the niche or refilling the hive. So I, I think that's a critique they don't really talk about much in their paper. They only mention that, that the permethrins were, were pretty low in toxicity. That seems really odd to me because that's kind of like, they're like, yeah, we got the birds to come back. Also, we coated their houses with horrible poison. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a problem, and I I think, and so like the half life of fipronil too, is almost a year. It, it takes almost a year for half of it to go away. Hey everyone, Sean here. Just jumping in to correct myself real quick. The half life of fipronil is actually between 122 to 128 days, which means it would take almost a full year for the entire amount of that chemical compound to break down. It only takes 122 days for half of it to break down. Anyway, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Seems like a pretty big oversight in the review process. Right, but... and and birds, like macaws and stuff, typically use like three points of contact when climbing, so they usually use their beak as like a third claw. So like they're they're definitely putting their mouths on on this pesticide, so it's it's Have, not good. Was there any mention in the study? Because I mean, I I read the paper, but I didn't read any sort of any supplemental material mm. or anything. Was there any mention anywhere of like deaths? No. So they they don't talk about that at all. Um, the the deaths that they talked about predominantly came from birds being stung to death or uh, on a few occasions. Um, because there were less niches or less recesses in previous years that uh, often multiple breeding pairs would be forced into close proximity with each other, and they would often fight to the death, usually leading to the to the death of one of the males or one of the females. So just an interconflict uh, between the birds themselves. That sounds like you know this title, the results of this paper should have been published. We increased the breeding population of this endangered bird with a subtitle. Also, we may have poisoned them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they they do mention that they, they need to think about how to do this without pesticides. But they don't really mention the bird's toxicity. They just kind of mention, hey, this is toxic to small mammals, you know, uh, geckos, uh, other uh, fauna that may be in the area, other bugs that are native to the to the ecosystem we don't want to kill those obviously because they they are you know important in their own right to the ecosystem we just want to kill specifically the bees and i think i think the crossbow method is probably your best bet if you're going to remove those hives anyway so you fill that hive full of pomethrins and then you just dispose of those hives you don't leave them in the ecosystem you you, you make sure you minimize the amount of pesticides that are getting put out into the the rainforest because uh, obviously what a that's day bad. to be alive when science says the best answer is to shoot it with crossbows i know <laughs> so final thoughts this was a really cool paper uh i love that the title tells you exactly what tells you all the information you need to know about this paper like hey this experiment was successful. I feel like so few biological papers do that. So I really appreciate them just saying like, hey, it increased the breeding population. 
yeah it was it was an interesting read uh, especially as someone who doesn't really have any sort of background in zoology mm-hmm. um and you know as a lifetime fantasy nerd it's kind of hard to not be at least a little bit pulled in when i'm told we did science with crossbows and i'm just like <laughs> well hell yeah let me read about right this. like I was so excited to read this paper just because of, like, I saw the pictures in the supplementary material of, like, here's these people in beekeeper suits with fucking crossbows. I'm like, yes. Science is equivalent of Knights of the Realm. Exactly. I, I want to join this guild. <laughs> my, I mean, we, t- we touched on it oh, a couple minutes ago. Really, my, my biggest critique here is just I would have liked to see them at least talk about you know, or monitor the birds for any signs of toxicity because, you know, if I didn't read, I didn't know this while I was reading because I'm not as familiar mm-hmm. with these compounds as you might be, but if, if one of those pesticides is highly toxic to birds, that just seems like a really big right, oversight right. to me that they don't mention that at all. They don't appear to have checked the birds for any sort of negative effects of this toxin. And, you know, to, to really be a standout paper, I would have. I would really like to see some sort of like addressing the fact that oh by the way we brought them back but we might have also poisoned right, them. Right, right. Because um, I I personally don't know if it affects the adult birds or if it'll affect the offspring. We like there's so many possibilities. Um, I know that information is out there. Yeah, and and if you're if you're talking about a study or you know you're doing a study and you're going to talk about the results with you bringing back this population though i feel like the information should be there i shouldn't have to go yeah you shouldn't have find to it. you shouldn't have to dig for it it's definitely something they should have considered like i i think that should have been part of their final discussion about like hey by the way pesticides <laughs> aren't good for birds believe it or not here's some issues that may become coming up in the pipeline here's some ways we want to mitigate that and here's some ways that we want to continue monitoring you know this population specifically because we know they've been exposed to both two types of pesticides so right but you know otherwise i would say as as far as science papers have got found it pretty enjoyable yeah i i totally agree it was a fun read um it was a very easy read too it was about 30 pages but i mean probably less like 10 pages of that are just like resources and supplementary material. It's a fantastic paper. If you, if you want to read about bees and killer bees and crossbows and birds, read this paper Pacifico at L good work. Uh, I, I really, really look forward to seeing more from you guys someday. So why don't we go over to our featured creature? And Sean, tell me what is this week's featured creature? So this week we're going to piggyback off of last week. So last week I told you, oh, by the way, platypuses glow in the dark, kind of. Turns out Tasmanian devils do too. They're also biofluorescent. They just discovered that last week. That's not why I'm bringing them up, though. Uh, Tasmanian devils also are inflicted by a type of transmissible cancer called DFTD. That's Tasmanian Devil Facial Tumor Disease, which is not lovely (laughs) if you've ever seen pictures. So the way this form of cancer is transmitted is from biting one another. And unfortunately, that is kind of part of life when you are a Tasmanian Devil is you get in fights with other Tasmanian Devils. So it's, it's really unfortunate that this form of disease that kind of preys on their typical uh, disposition is actually causing them to get wiped out 
on you know it, they weren't having much much help with uh survival what with habitat loss and you know human encroachment onto their typical so creams. do i have an accurate painting of a picture of a tasmanian devil they glow in the dark they're aggressive as fuck and they've got permanent turbo cancer essentially yes um the thing is though it's not spread from mother to child so the way the government has been kind of trying to counteract DFTD is they've started taking some of those pups and they've been breeding them on uh, mainland Australia in hopes that once they get rid of all the DDFT ones, they can start reintroducing the population. Unfortunately, a second form of DDFT, sorry, DFTD was discovered in 2014. So it's they, there's another strain of it now, so it's it's not great. Uh, and dear listener, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom because the Tazis, <laughs> they're not doing great. But you know there are active conservation efforts out there trying to mitigate this problem specifically. So uh, Australia really does have the craziest shit. They really do. Like, I I guess DFTD would kind of be similar to like HPV. Well, it's not like. You know, it's not a papillomavirus. It's not a wart necessarily, but you can develop cancers from HPV. So uh, maybe it's it's kind of transmissible like like that form of cancer in, in humans. So, yes, thank you all for joining us. Hug a, hug your local Tasmanian devil. Highly recommended. Uh, shoot some killer bees with crossbows. <laughs> shoot some killer bees with crossbows while rappelling down a cliffside in Brazil. Do it. And if you do do it, I want to see pictures I also want you to make us a board game called Killer Bees and Crossbows. But most importantly, listener, please keep listening to the Weird Biology <laughs> Show podcast. Uh, as always, our intro song is written by my younger brother, Jesse Ricca. You can follow him on SoundCloud. Please do. Dan, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on SoundCloud. Follow us on YouTube. We're everywhere. We're slowly working on getting on Spotify, but thank you all for your patience and thank you for joining us. Tune in next time and see more weird shit. Bye. Bye.